1: welcome to a new edition of the bandwagon podcast and today um, my guest is um what i would say kind of like a true activist who specializes a lot of his work in uh, my home city of, of birmingham um birmingham. yeah west midlands uh, just to put it in there just to, just to kind of map it for those who are listening abroad which is quite quite a bit anyway uh, i'll just leave it there um He's somebody who's played a real pivotal role in the last eighteen months in the, within the city with, on various reasons, which are which we'll get into. Um, but I'm happy to uh, introduce Nathan Dennis from uh, First Class Foundation.
2: Nathan, how are you? I'm brilliant. I'm brilliant. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your podcast. I'm excited. It's an honor. It's a privilege. Let's go. <laughs> I I will say that you probably are the most enthusiastic that I've
1: uh, guest that I've had in the, over the last sort of four months. But uh, um, I really appreciate though that that positivity, especially uh, um, it's really hot at the moment. So trying to get get through this, if it's, if I'm sweating, you know, it's one of those hot days. So just to put it into this perspe-
2: perspective, it's not no, it's not normal though, is it? This heat's like serious. So you what, what we at today like 30 to today between 30 and 29.
1: Yeah, you know what was weird though, at the beginning of COVID last year, do you remember when like, uh, when the first lockdown was announced and it was actually quieter than Christmas on the roads? And yeah. You could just see like, oh, the, the environment, the air was just, just working itself out and we got like yeah. a proper summer, didn't we, for a, about a month solid, every day. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Garden. And then you could kind of tell when people were kind of uh, going back to work or weren't adhering to the lockdown as uh, as much. You can see the weather started being unpredictable, where you started getting those four seasons in a day. So that was my own marker that people were breaching.
2: <laughs> the weather had the weather changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hear you. Now, nah, but yeah, it's it's been a it's been a journey. The last 16 months um, has been a very it's been quite a roller coaster in terms of you know mentally, emotionally. Just so much change happening within our world, and especially here in the UK. Um, But I'm grateful that we're here, that I'm still standing, that, you know, we still have the opportunity to do the stuff that we do through the work that I do within the city. So, yeah, it's been a journey, man.
1: I just want to kind of set the scene then in terms of what your uh, organisation does and uh, Mm. and operates, and then kind of work backwards of how you got to that position. So, can you just set the scene for us of what your organisation does and specialises in?
2: So First Class Foundation is a charity based in Birmingham, West Midlands, England. Um, Originally, we were just putting ourselves in a a category of specialists in youth and community engagement strategies. Um, But then, when we started to realise some of the social issues that were happening within our environment, we kind of filtered some of our stuff out into three key areas, which was helping to reduce youth violence within our city, helping to improve mental health resilience, Amongst young people in the wider community, be engaged and also um, connect young people and their families to their purpose through exposing them to more opportunities.
1: So, like from, from that position, obviously that's clear in terms of like the business objectives and, and what you're doing. But like, mm. if you're if you're like, where you did you start and live in Birmingham to start off there? Yeah, <laughs> and then,
2: I'm like from Birmingham inner city, Newtown. Grew up in a postcode area of B19. Um, Newtown, most of my family is between Newtown, Northwest Birmingham, basically like Handsworth, Newtown, yeah. Lascelles. Um, that's where I spent most of my, my life, my childhood. Um, and what's interesting is, is like when I was growing up, I didn't realise that there was like classed as poor areas because mm. it was just like lots of family, lots of gatherings in, in and out of other people's homes, family homes, and even people who you call friends who were operating more like family. It was just more of a sense of community and I guess when I became a teenager um, and I started to see some of the um the challenges the risky behaviors that young people were taking and the type of trouble that they was getting into um I really started to develop a passion to say you know what I want to go back out and and make a difference in my community and I think you know change for me Ricky if I go right to the core was you know I was a teenager I made lots of mistakes myself um, got involved in the run crowd and etc cetera, etc cetera. that's that kind of stereotypical story but like when I came to faith um that had a massive impact on my life and my my mindset and my mentality um, and I and I became a born-again Christian um, I gave my life to that kind of way of life and I really had a kind of epiphany moment or or you could say like an open vision where I felt that I needed to create something that could connect with my community in a more relatable way um, i kept on seeing a massive gap ricky in services and how they was relating and connecting with my community um, my first ever job in around community like work was at an organization called community roots based in hansworth so it was on the soho road oh,
0: wow. of anyone
2: that knows the city Birmingham, Seoul is a, a very popular road. You know, so like a flagship road actually. Um, and yeah, I used to go to these open day community events and there will be like 15, 20 organisations in the room all there for the community. And like we'd wait there we'll sit there and no one would come through the doors. You'd have one or two that will pop in through the community centre. And I was starting to see that there was a massive gap between statutory organisations the wider voluntary organizations and even some private businesses that were trying to advertise their opportunities to the community. And I realized actually there's a there's a bit of a gap here. Like these companies don't have a clue how to engage, especially the African and Caribbean community. Mm-hmm. So almost like by accident, I had a brainwave to think, actually, let me create something and, and give people my ideas around how they could more effectively engage with the African and Caribbean community. And that's kind of like how we kind of birthed and outside of the charity work, I have a separate like training um, and consultancy company that does all of that type of consultation and strategy development stuff through an organization and company called Legacy Consultants.
1: It's quite interesting what you were saying before, you know, I'm from, I was born in Hansworth as well. So um, it's true we you, you didn't know that it was an affluent area, until as you got, kind of got older or you you got told it was it you know it was yeah what, do you make exposed
2: to different cultures yeah, uh, yeah I, because
1: I, it might not be affluent rich but it was very very heavily community rich You had a, a real cauldron of loads of uh, uh, different communities coming in and especially in the early uh sorry the late 50s early 60s where first generation Asians and uh, black and Caribbean uh, community, especially coming over. We're all yeah. housing, like living together at that point. And there's a real, yeah. you can see that, you could feel it. Even when I speak to my grandparents of that, of uh, identity, of how people celebrate the identity, but we're all in the same kind of struggle. Did you feel yeah. that was, was that something that you felt when you younger or was it, um, or did you feel a bit of a disconnect to try and, a little, to move out in, and operate in a different way?
2: Nah, 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 nah. My, like, I, I, was, I was at a funeral like this last week and I was, this funeral was actually at, in West Bromwich. Um, and there was a lot of people gathered at this funeral and a lot of people just like drinking and having food and like having, I know it's a funeral, but it was actually a joyous occasion where people were together and connecting. And someone mm. was actually asking me, like, where does your sense of community? Because I couldn't believe how many people I knew at this funeral. Because mm. it, like, it you know, felt feel like a thousand people. It wasn't a thousand people, but probably like about 300 people was there, like between inside and outside in the car park area. And I knew basically probably 80% of the people there. And he says, how can you know so much people? And you know what I started to talk about? I said, when I was growing up, there was a thing called um, Sunday Festival that used to be in Hanser Park where all the reggae sound systems would be in the park every Sunday without fail, and everyone would bring out their kids and we would listen to music, eat food together, and it was like real community. And that's my memories, my fondest and earliest childhood memories was being just constantly surrounded by my community, constantly going to events where you just seen everybody. Um, And that was a lot to do with Hansworth, Hansworth's culture, you know, the reggae culture, the Rastafarian movement, the churches, the different things that was happening back then um, in Hands And that's where I got my sense of community from, to be honest, from Hands Park.
1: So the, the connect was there from a young age because of the experience of what you were feeling every week yeah. It was being kind of
2: reinforced. Yeah, it was just normal. It was just like a normal thing. And then just the, the Caribbean culture of like, you know, like you talked about the different generations I don't know how it is in the Asian culture, but I think it's the same to be honest, because I've got Asian neighbors and they do the same with me. Like every minute trying to give me food. (laughs) And it's the same thing with like my grandma, my grand grandma generation. Like food is a is a significant thing. Eating together is significant. Sharing food is very, very important. And like that's what I got from my grandparents. Like the sense of family, yeah. The the sense of family the sense of like nothing's too hard to help each other out you know like I could never go to my grandmother's house or nan's house and leave empty-handed I'll be given a bag or a or or a Tupperware container with something to take back home you know like like you would think that I was walking around with a sign saying I am hungry feed me it wasn't that it was just the culture and I think some people find that hard to understand how other cultures are I don't know if you've ever been to, like, you know, like, obviously we've been in COVID and stuff like that. yeah. And yeah. that's been a challenging time to try and understand how different communities and cultures operate. And I think sometimes the most telling time is times of sickness. So, like, City Hospital, which is a quite a known hospital in Birmingham.
1: The old Dudley Road, just in case if anyone who's uh, was in Birmingham moved out.
2: Yeah. The Old Dudley Road. I remember when my granddad was sick, Ricky, and I would go to visit him. And this is not just not hopefully this is not triggering to anyone, but the harsh reality is when I used to walk on the ward, the only beds that would have masses of families were the black families and Asian families, right? And everyone else didn't have visitors, and that was consistently day after day after day. And that for me tells you shows me that there's significantly something different the way how other cultures deal with or, or look at family because on this specific ward was mainly the elderly so like nans or grandpas and stuff like that and the whole family is rolling out at the hospital and being there and visiting and it's just it's just interesting because when I think about just going back to the why, why I raised this point was about culture traditions and things that are important like, family is really, really important. And that's one of the things you get when you're in Hansworth in an area like Hansworth, is that sense of family.
1: Do you still think that the area is um, like that or is it significantly changed? I know, it. I, like, I still go back through Hansworth now and again.
2: Significantly. Yeah. I think it's significantly changed. I think society has changed at all. I think that even those who are doing better now, we've kind of, like, forgotten some of those values. Like, I don't know what generation you are in, in terms of your culture, but I'm, like, third generation.
1: Yeah,
2: I'm third, I'm, I'm third. Yeah, third generation. And we have some of the principles, but it's not as deep as, like, Nan and Grandma would have or Granddad. It's, it's, it's a bit changed. It's a bit, like, I think we're a bit more self-centred for whatever reason Um, or just focused on our careers and our what we're doing. So I do think, that things have changed for Hansworth in particular. There's been a lot of new communities that have come in, mm. so it's com- the demographics has completely changed. There's a there's a there's a, there's a now significantly heavy um, Eastern European culture that's there now. So that for me, the area has completely changed.
1: Yeah, I mean, like historically, it's always had like a transient community. Uh, it's a transient area where people of different communities come in and then move on and, and kind of expand out. I think you definitely are right that you don't. It's it's hard to recognize the whole area and especially some of the culture when you go back. Like mm-hmm. I, I used to go back and just have my hair cut in there and just kind of felt like I used to reset the buttons of like knowing who was around. But then like I genuinely can't recognize a lot of the people around there or recognize some of the area. And I just kind of put that down to kind of like as you get older, generally like you, your outlook on life changes and stuff like that. And you, you just see people where there are different stages of life of where how they're going to move as a family or as a generation within that. Where do, where would you reckon you could pinpoint it that you felt that there was a bit of a change in that in that whole area? Mm. Can't
2: pinpoint it, but no, like. I can't, I can't pinpoint it. To be honest, I know there was a significant regeneration and um, ambition that happened in Soho on Soho Road in particular. A lot of some of the for, for the African Caribbean community, some of the main spots like Tasha's nightclub and one, um, I can't remember, I remember all the names of the places, but there was there were certain locations, but they just gone now, and they're different now. You know, there's a there's a massive project like the Nishkan project. Primary school, nursery, and um, the gudwara. Um, So things have changed significantly. Some things you could say is for the better, but then for others, I think it's it hasn't necessarily been positive. It's just it's just changed in it, and it's not the, it's not the same.
0: And I it's, think what happened as
2: well is when the council um, stopped allowing really and started to fight against the Birmingham Carnival happening, and then they tried to move it to like they tried to ban it at first, and then. They moved it to like Prairie Bar and then it started to be problematic. But when I was growing up, I think Carnival, if I remember rightly, was at least a two to three day affair. Well, it was like Friday, it. Sunday at least, or something like that.
1: I, I used to remember Birmingham Carnival. We used to come down from like Grafton Road, go down to Rookery Road and see it going up from, yeah. from, from that bit and going into, into Hansard Park from there. I think like, I've actually thought about the question that I asked, the, asked you, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I would kind of pinpoint it. I always felt when the the trouble in the early 2000s, you know, Mm -hmm. where there was some of the rioting that happened at that point, I think it was about 2005. Mm -hmm. I just felt that it just became a little bit unrecognizable at that point, because that wasn't natural. It's had trouble before, but it was relatively calm for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And I just felt at that point, it was a little bit of a tipping point because that generation was our generation. You know, we were like the 20 year olds at that time. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I was seeing some of my friends like, you know, getting locked up or leaving the area completely, and that mm-hmm. legacy of what they left behind was like there was just nothing. There was just void, mm-hmm. and and I, and I think that was a real opportunity lost there, where you know that sense of community coming in to kind of rebuild what was going to be there, or at least determine what the future might look like. Do you reckon that's fair, or do you reckon it's,
2: it? Uh, I I was thinking that because I was thinking two thousand eleven with the Mark Dogan riots. But then I thought, no, I think he started to change way before that. So I think you could be right with that analysis, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. It's hard to say, but I just know that like, I just think that society's changed a lot. You, the way how your bills go and, how, you know, your outgoings, it causes people to have to like really be on their game. I don't, I just, for some reason, I just think back in the day, there wasn't this pressure of the of, I know you always have bills to pay but I just think it, the outgoing levels are more so people have to just be like I, I don't have time to like do the community stuff or family stuff as much as I used to because I'm trying to like keep a roof over my head and then that's the battle between like social mobility and, and this whole thing about you know being on the career path and then you kind of leave the area and you want for a better word you move to a supposedly better area but like my, my, my experience of that, like what isn't sometimes as better is like you lose a lot of other stuff. Like you don't get the community necessarily. Like in where I live now, it was only, it's only the Sikh family that I have about three Sikh families that are all one family, but they have three different houses on my estate where I live. And they're the only people that have ever come to our house and knocked the door and offered food and give us cards, Christmas cards, try and remember the girls' birthdays and vice versa. And we will have, like, real conversations outside. Other people will be polite, but they have never given it. They've never knocked the door with anything. Yeah. The only yeah, time they've but... the door is when they're saying the music's too loud. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, not, it's normally, and, like, I don't think that where people... It's funny you say that, yeah, because where I live, like even when you see some of the same kind of Asian families, you know if that was in hands, with they would have, they would have spoke to each other. Mm-hmm. Around here, it, it's like they're like, they look at you like, what are you doing here? We were the first ones here. What, you know, we try to get yeah. away from the community. We're trying, you know, it's yeah. almost this kind of like uh, we've, we've broken out of those social moulds of what we were. We want to get better and better. So it's always, I have a running joke with one of the lads and it. it was always, the, you know, I lived there 10 years first, 20 years first. And it's like the competition of like, who was the first, uh, like uh, Asian around here, this side. I mean, like, look, look, nobody gives a shit, mate. You know, like, <laughs> as long as you're happy and good, fair enough. But that social mobility, what you said, I think it comes with, like, social media as well, isn't it? It's because the pressures of trying to constantly look good. You're constantly at work now. If you've got a self, if you've got a, your own business, you, you're you portraying that, you know, we're busy, we're doing this kind of stuff all the time. Whereas I think traditionally, when I look back, when, like, my parents used to finish the finished work, they came home and they knew it was family time. They never used to kind of bring the work home. But nowadays, you've got to be, are online emails are flying at different times. And, and you almost kind of get rewarded for working longer hours, but not financially maybe, but out of kind of kudos of like, you know, mm-hmm. work hard, you don't stop. You must do better. Here's your goals. You're, you're constantly being coached online about how shit your life is. and you could, And you need to do, you can do more and you could do better. But for some people, that's as good as it gets.
2: It, I think, good? You know what I mean? I think, Yeah, I think uh, I hear exactly what you're saying. It's a word that I call that we lack the ability to be content, we lack mm-hmm. contentment. So you find that we're constantly like, there's a saying that I say, um, life is not a destination, but a journey. Start to enjoy the journey. <laughs> Many of us set these goals and say, when I get a bigger car, I want to get a bigger house or a nicer watch. Then I'm going to be happy, and they put all their focus into these acquiring these things. But actually, when they get there, they realize like actually, it's nothing. Is that make sense? You got it, and it's like okay. And what I am trying to be a kind of ambassador for is empowering people to think about enjoying the journey. So like I just come off a call with my uncle who's in America who's in America, and he says, "My God, Nathan, you are smashing it, man! It looks like you." You're killing it out there. I'm watching you, man, on social media and all this stuff. But, like, when he's like, video called me, I'm, like, lying on my bed in my vest, like, chilling. And he's, like, "How can you chilling? I thought you'd be working. I'm says, nah, I'm just chilling with the girls, the family, the girls are off. It's holiday season. I'm, like, trying to have balance. And he's, like, oh. And I said, yeah, I said, you know what? I'm not trying to work myself to the ground and then, like, my kids look at, look at me and turn around to me and go, Dad, you know, thanks for all these material stuff, but we've never seen you. I don't want that to be my story. Say. So for me, I'm trying to enjoy the journey. I don't wait till I, I make a certain amount of money or whatever, whatever to enjoy my life. I, I, I try my hardest to engage with my children, do stuff with them, especially on the weekend and just like spend that quality time with them. I'm not waiting till oh, I've got this certain amount of figure, then I'm going to start living life. Tomorrow's not promised, Ricky, man. And if if... You know the blessings or the lessons i learned from the last 15 to 16 months is like anything can happen like we are not guaranteed to be here tomorrow so let us try and live today with everything that we've got say yes more to opportunities like when you called me or when we had the conversation he says oh nate would you come on i says yeah no problem he said yes Cause who knows where this conversation might go who knows who might listen to this and actually feel like you know what that guy's connecting with me you just don't know where things are and that's what life's about it's like just living it and just doing the best you can do with what you've got
1: yeah yeah 100 percent. I, and i think like going back to like life and as it was like i want to kind of bring it back to where kind of some of the significant changes in your story of your life and, and where it go through so there, there is the aspect of where, where we were living, it had the, the bit of community feeling, it had all of this side, but it did also have another side to it in terms of where, you know, there was some trouble, there was some kind of, um, you know, Conflicts. Uh, yeah, violence, there was everything that was, you know, that it, can, it, it was a place that had everything in there. In your When you were younger and you said you used, to, you used to kind of almost got derailed off or you did get derailed off. What made you different to everybody else at that point? And what was the environment like there, especially if you could set the scene of like how what the pressures and the pulls were to go down a certain
2: lifestyle? What was that like? Very, very, very real. Like the harsh reality is right. Your role models... The media you're consuming, I thought that the only way to be someone that had respect is someone that was tough, that was had a gangster image, um, and it was almost like you got a choice: you either be the bully or you be the victim. It's only it almost felt like there's only two decisions, or you you know you you stand up for yourself because you're gonna get you know, in the street culture we call it violated. And the is always there because you got family members because even if it's not you that's getting into direct trouble, you got people that you know. And it's like when people are in conflict, people call you and you're expected to respond. You're expected to um, have their back. So it was, it was very real. Like I, I, I definitely was not angel when I was a teenager. Um, but and, and the worst thing was I had a, a, a really warped philosophy because I thought that masculinity and manhood was defined by how much money you had, how many girls you had or had slept with, and how tough you was. I literally was that simple. I know it sounds really ridiculous, Ricky, but no, no I, used I, to, I used to value myself. I used to value myself against that. So I wasn't a man if I didn't have money in my pocket. I wasn't a man if I didn't have multiple girls and, and relationships. I wasn't a man if I couldn't fight someone and, and win and knock them out or whatever it was. And that was how you was getting your respect and your stripes. And I think for me, like, I went for a season where, like, especially when I became a teenager, and I found the ability to hustle and wheel and deal and do different things to make money. I was got to a place now where, I'm, you know, I'm living this like.
1: What were you doing at that time? What kind of stuff was going on, or what? If you don't want to share your own story now, what was some of the other people around you doing?
2: Yeah, it's everything it, like you're doing fraud there's crime happening you're just finding ways to make money is that making sense like just trying to do anything like criminality and one of the things that was crazy for me Ricky was I remember this time I started to go out like partying, raving and I used to go Broad Street a lot and then I do Broad Street till like at 2 a.m in the night Broad Street's a famous street in Birmingham for those in that don't know google it And after that, you go to like what people call the shubbins, like the after party, after party. They'll probably start at four o'clock and don't finish till six, seven o'clock in the morning. And I remember, you know, you got cash in your pocket, you're buying drinks and you're doing all the dancing with the girls. And I remember going home night after night and I'm like, I'm not happy, man. There's something missing in my life. And I couldn't put my finger on it because I'm doing the things based on this value system that I have, It'd be tough, have money and have girls. And I'm like, I still don't feel peace. I do not feel fulfilled. And what happened for me is like, when my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife of 15 years, became, fell pregnant or got pregnant, um, I kind of said to myself, I didn't want to be like the men that I had seen growing up in my life. Um, I I didn't have much positive role models to be honest. What so, were the What uh, were the
1: role models? At that
2: time? Men, men that had loads of kids but didn't, they wasn't looking after them, and I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be that in my children's life. And it just so happened that the person who got, you know, had my first child was someone that I actually loved, even though that at the time as a teenager, Ricky was something hard to confess, to talk to the man, them to talk to men about, like I actually love her, you know. You know, that was kind of seen as being soft. It's weird. It's all warped when you think about it, the environment you can grow up in. But anyway, um, I, I started to attend a church in in Nietzsche's Birmingham. And I can't explain it to this day, but I felt such a peace and a, such a sense of, like, finding my purpose and finding my why. And there's a quote that I always use, Ricky, when I'm doing speeches and talks. it and it's one of my favorite quotes and it says the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why and i felt like when i came to faith and i gave my life to christ and started to walk kind of born again christian life it's like the, the money that i had around me couldn't compare the girls couldn't compare this macho fake image that i had couldn't compare and i just found peace and i found purpose And then I started to pursue the charity work, what what, I've talked about already. And then through that, I've had offshoot organisations and companies through that. And I'm just now just much more happy, much more peaceful. I now have four daughters with my wife. We've been together for 15 years. I've been completely, I don't know, it sounds like a mad thing to say on a podcast, but I know from where I'm coming from, I've been completely faithful for the last 15 years. And for me, that's a ridiculous miracle because based on how I was like indoctrinated I was indoctrinated a different philosophy so being faithful was not something that I even thought I could do or achieve but I felt that through my faith and through you know God saying to me that he will be with me and he wouldn't leave me nor forsake me and and he'll give me guidance and I've been on that path and yeah now me and my wife run our companies like we have
1: yeah, Serena. You, like there is no way that we don't see you separate. Everything's always together, so it's always, it's always interesting. I was like, I once said, I was going, should I invite her or sort of, like have the three way on here? Because I yeah, you know, yeah. somehow she's gonna get involved. It just happens, and it just it's, yeah. How did you then like? Um, you know, you were talking about you had the like, I'll, I'll say the negative role models at that time. Where you know the, based on the uh, the behavior and the philosophies that were going on there, your inner circle at the time of uh, of of your friends, how did they react to your behavior? Because you're you're swimming you're swimming against the tide here. You're
2: yeah, going they fought, against the grain. They thought i gone crazy. They thought I was mad. There's like, what's he on about? It'll be back because I was like my 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 nickname was Skipper. They nicknamed me Skipper because I was captain for. Those who I wasn't, you know, hanging around with, riding with, whatever you want to call it, and they was like I be back. There's no way. He loves party life too much. So you know, in the club, I'm up front, center, big gold chain, buying champagne. That's the life that so I was living. It like hardcore, and um, they thought I was crazy. They was like, bro, Christian, faith. You're walking away. You're leaving everything. And I walked away, Ricky, from everything with tears in my eyes. And I said, I can't, I can't do this life no more, this lifestyle. And the truth of the matter is, Ricky, for about three years, I was away. I ghosted everyone because I was on this mad journey, personal development journey, where I had to really find myself. Um, I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking. I, I was now reading the Bible and going to church and doing all that kind of stuff. And I just went through a mad journey for three years where I just and have what, to what
1: were your mates doing at the time? And that so you're doing concurrently at the same time. What were they doing?
2: They're just doing the same old stuff. They're still partying. They're still girls. They're still trying to make money. They're just still trying to do the same thing. And and like, at first, you know, there has been people that was really offended because for them, I abandoned them. I left them. Um, I was like the main person that organized all the social events and stuff, the, the holidays. I remember like the last holiday I, I I actually organized for all the men was to um, Amsterdam, went to, Ham, um, no, the yeah, Amsterdam carnival and I organized, I booked all the hotels and everything and we really turned it up out there and I realized after coming back around that there still wasn't doing, there was no one that stood in that role. so. I started to create, like, I started to do retreats and stuff with them and take them into the countryside and spend time, and they got to understand my heart and my journey, and you know, we st- all of them, we still majority of them, 95% good friends, and they all have come back to me separately, and said, you know what, we respect you, because you know what, Skips? You have kept it 100. And what I always said to myself, Ricky, if I'm going to be 100 when I'm in that lifestyle, when I'm step out of that, I'm going to be 100 in this and give it all my, like, my, my very best um and yeah like i've seen them come around in it like some of the most rewarding stuff i've done i don't do it as much as i used to do but i got i go into prisons a lot and i speak to guys in it who are in prison for doing things that i was doing as a teenager and i'm able to go in there and say that look i've got i've completely changed my life i'm married i have a business i've got a charity and i really try and go in there and just be an inspiration to them to say that you know what it doesn't matter how bad life's got. It doesn't matter all the mistakes you've got. If you make a decision, you can change your life. Uh, try and bring that hope and bring that kind of second chance message that, you know what, I don't care how, you know, down and out you are. If you make a decision and really work hard, you can, you can come back, man. You can bounce back. Um, and that's what I'm passionate about. That's like my, my core passion is about, I mean, it's all said and done, like, my core passion is helping people. And that's what I get, I, I guess, Ricky, for some reason you've touched, I don't know why I'm going this way, but one of my frustrating things now in my life right now with all, because I'll be honest, you know, we talked about the weather. I see life like seasons. So like there's some time in your life when you, you feel like it in a winter, where, and that, that those first three years of my faith journey, it felt like a winter. It was like I was in isolation was cold i wasn't around no friends nobody really i tried to find myself and then before even that happened it was autumn like people dropped off i i dropped people off and you know like in the lease on the tree to drop off then i went into winter but then spring happened like new buds of opportunity happened and then summer so like right now in my life i can be honest and say you know give thanks to god i'm in a summer like things are going really well but one of the things that frustrates me in my community i don't know if it transcends in your community as well, is like the hate culture. And like people like see the success or see the fruits of your work, hard labor, and then think that it came easy. And Ricky didn't. Like I've just been hand in my heart, genuinely with my, my, my life, trying to help people. And people have connected to that. Like when I get opportunities, a lot of the opportunities I've got is through relationships with people. And through just people connecting, and said, you know, something about, you you know, if I'm going to give you an opportunity and some of the opportunities have been amazing. And then there's other opportunities where like you have to do your tendering and stuff. And the fact of the matter is we don't lie in our tenders. We talk about the work that we've done. And that translates on paper as well. You know, you just said something there about like, I think
1: that jealousy and that hate is kind of like in in every community that's out there. I just think why it might be a little bit different in ours is because everyone, in, in essence, started at the same point. You get know what I mean? Like a race. And then some people are going to go way ahead than others. And some people, you know, that first generation, second generation of, of what's going on. Yeah. And so, you know, when you see somebody that like almost kind of your peers and you think, oh, how did they do that? You know, they started with nothing. That sense of it's an inherent sort of uh, philosophy of jealousy that sort of kicks in. Mm -hmm. and it's about understanding as well isn't it you know like where people want to understand where they where they went right where did they go wrong and it manifests itself in that hate i'm not saying that they purposely do that hate it's almost like if Mm they how come they did it and i didn't do it you know you're gonna get that in every every aspect but i just think it comes down to how you use that energy whether you want to stay in that position you can still you know jealousy is a healthy thing Jealousy can mm-hmm. be a healthy thing. Sorry, it can be that that motivation to make you do better and do. it. I and I know that you know from the kind of work that we've done together before. Like you've you utilize that as kind of fuel, but I don't think as a community or communities that lesson is uh, has been learned yet.
2: Because mm-hmm. what do you know? The worst thing is I always say, instead of some instead of hating in silence like, come and ask, and God is my witness, I will, I will tell you, like, I'll give you, I'll tell you everything I know, like, I'll show you what I did, I'll show you the sleepless nights, I'll, I'll give you them the manual of what I did behind the scenes to get to where I'm getting, get and I'm nowhere near where I actually want to be in my vision, but I'm definitely making progress type of thing, and and that's, not, yeah, that's, that's ultimately my heart, man, is just to help people. One of the things
1: oh, that, where I remember uh, see, where I met you first uh, was at an event where you bought quite a lot. I know you've been, and you know, for those who are watching and listening, Nathan has been very, very diplomatic and very polite in when he's talking about some of his stories and and uh, incidents of what he's uh, what he's mentioning. That you brought some of those close friends of yours, or, or who have been kind of rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember there was a, an incident in Birmingham where there was a stabbing that literally happened a day or two earlier, and we had the event where we met for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been one of your kind of things where you where things have happened, and you've got, uh, you know, a, unfortunately, a young. I'm just being generalizing, yeah. stereotypical. Yeah, a young, a young guy has been stabbed to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember speaking to you that day, and you said something which stuck in my mind, saying, you know, this is like, it's such a routine. It's become like, it's almost detached emotion. Like, this is like a mm. script of behavior that you were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why why is why is the knife crime um, problem becoming such a, more of a mainstream issue? Because I've always felt it's always been there. It's just these mm-hmm. att- the attention now has kind of switched on to it.
2: Mm, I think that if you think about so my generation with violence and all that kind of stuff right there wasn't social media so one of the trainings I deliver Ricky is a thing called navigating the new terrain and in this training I and I've been using this training with like youth offending workers parents people who work around young people and what I say about navigating the terrain is that one of the things I think that people haven't accounted for is the power of social media and the power of influencing music and the fact that like when I was younger I'm an 81 baby like 80s baby right when you listen to Top of the Pops the music that I was listening to that was chart topping was like real take that type of pop music well, I, don't know if, I don't know if Sugar Babes is probably still too early but it's what I call popular music like really like fun loving, happy music. What is number one now is a song that's talking about stab you up, shoot you, sell drugs, do this, do that, the other. That's glamorizing or rappers will all say, I'm not glamorizing, I'm just talking about the life that I've lived or life where we've come from. And what's happened is that like street culture has now become what is now popular culture. So what is chart tapping? Is a culture that is very negative, is 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 lyrics that are very destructive, and I feel that young people are getting hooked and almost um, seduced by this music, by the media now as well. So what happens now, Ricky? I don't know. Like if you can think about someone that was a celebrity for you when you was younger growing up. For me, I liked WWE. What was WWF? W F. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. We're a traditional, yeah. So we'll still call it WWF.
2: Yeah. So like Ultimate Warrior for instance was my yeah. favorite wrestler yes. and Hulk Hogan and Legion of Doom was my like tag team that I used to like. And then say my favorite boxer was Mike Tyson. When I was growing up, Ricky, there was no way in God's green earth I could see their lifestyles. And I wouldn't even really realize that Ultimate Warrior was actually someone very wealthy and Hulk Hogan is. still alive, so you can start kind of see his stuff or oh, Mike Tyson obviously making millions for his fights. There was no way I could scroll and start to see his house, his car, his lifestyle that he's living. This generation can do that with all of their idols, footballers, rappers, fashion icons, businessmen, and they can just watch all this content 24 hours a day. And they're seeing a lifestyle that is really glitzy and glamorous. Everyone's posting their best picture on so best pics on social media. So that mixed with all the stuff that they're visually consuming, all the stuff that they're consuming for their ears, I think it's a cocktail for disaster. So young people are now manifesting some of these behaviours who are living in poor communities that don't have opportunities. Some of these communities, it takes how many miles just to find a cash point machine or a bank? Like, there's not a lot of opportunities in this area. So what happens, they get into drugs, they get into turf war, they get into problems where they take out their angers with each other. Lack of, like, even on a, a kind of recreational activity level. they not having access to, like, go to a boxing club or do some sports to, like, release your energy and your tension. So what happens, all this anger and frustration, they're taking it on each other. And it's just, it's now become a, I think that's the real pandemic right now, or epidemic at least, anyway, is youth violence. It's, it's it's horrible, man. It's really horrible. And they've, come, they've become nihilistic where they don't have emotion. They're not even connecting it. It's like it's easier i remember speaking i remember a young person speaking at a conference that i was speaking at. i got him to come with me and i said what do you think the problem is at the moment and he says to me he says and i'll never forget it he's from Hansworth as well actually and he says um from his assumption or assessment of young people especially the ones that he's around in Hansworth, saying that it's actually more easier to die than to live so for young people it's actually like an escape to die. Dying is easy. Live, like Living is hard. It's hard to live out here. It's hard to sort of try and find money and all this stuff. And I was like, that just brought my heart, man. Because I was like, wow, there's young people that think that it's, it's easier to die than to live. So that's when I started a project called the Your Life Matters Project. And I started to aggressively start to tell young people that your life matters. And that I believe that you're born with a God-given purpose and that everyone in this world has something to offer and something to give and to value your life and life, life's worth living um, after that conversation.
1: I mean, like uh, what you mentioned about the, um, the social media, kind of the, the whole imagery around it. I think there was an argument when it got to a stage where, oh, is it music? Is it video games that are gonna influence it? And it, there was a, enough rhetoric then to kind of, back that away and say no 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 you know like if i'm singing about a drive-by it it doesn't mean i'm gonna go and actually do a drive-by i never thought what you just said then where how that the kind of alternative music what you've just said or that the gang violence uh uh, music that you said has now gone into popular mainstream it is (laughs) actually it's actually happening in the asian culture as well with a lot of the kind of music that's coming there's a lot more guns in videos there's all these kind of things And, you know, I, you know, having this conversation, I'm feeling exactly like what my parents used to say, you know, getting old in that right. But I think when you got like social media pages dedicated to violence of how people got robbed, how they stole your car and and all Mm -hmm. these, you know, it's got to play some of a role
2: as- It's having an impact, man. And a lot of rappers are in denial because at the end of the day, if if they was to be honest about it, you're going to mess up their money. Corporate companies are investing heavily into them, Ricky. There's certain rappers, right, that are getting serious endorsements by serious brands and getting paid good money just to post up products in people's um, people's like in in the Instagram feed or whatever. So it's it's very lucrative. Like the negative is is selling and it's selling at a hot pace. But how do you
1: get your message to those to those people? Like you're connected, you're quite heavily connected. Surely in those same kind of speaking circles, all those areas that you're talking about, that you are able to have those conversations to say, look, I was thinking the exactly same, same as you, but I've got enough evidence that, enough funerals that I'm attending to say, this is wrong, yeah. this is, is changing.
2: For me, Ricky, the only time you get the real heart to hearts is two moments. When you're sitting with them in the chapel in prison, when they're in prison and doing the big 15, Double figure sentence, and they start listening then. And also, when you're at like these things that we do, like vigils and stuff, where they're like at the family house and they're all crying their eyes out because their friends died. And that's when you can talk to them and plant seeds because they're now, the provider's drugs, they're not as like being, you know, hyper masculine to so just like more humbled. And then you can talk to them. And then you find some people that like will reach out to you on the one to one. I say, what did you do? You're gonna you know, I'm gonna say, um, how did you change your life? How did you get out? And kind of thing. And then I teach them like I have a program that I've written for the Street Smart to Business Start program that we've run a number of times with young people who are coming from that lifestyle. And we basically teach them how to have transferable skills to say that actually if you was doing crime or doing whatever, actually you've got skills there. We don't celebrate the crime, but we we'll let them know that actually, say if it's someone that was doing robberies, is like you're very good at strategically planning. The fact that you you called a team together, you know how to manage human resources and how to put different people in different positions. And it's about making them understand, not glorifying the crime, but letting them to know that actually you have skills inside of you that you can use to set up a proper business, a legal business, and and make a change for your life.
1: Was there, like, you don't obviously have to name... name uh individuals in there, but was there ever um, um, an incident or an experience that you went through around uh, somebody getting hurt, murdered or anything like that, that stuck out significantly for yourself? And if so, what was the kind of reverberations around that with, the, with the, within the community?
2: Um, I can be very honest and say I personally was the organiser of an event in 2000 at the Oakland Youth Centre in the year 2000 in memory of my sister who passed away um, and it was an event called Heaven and Earth. So what it was, was that I organised um, five-a-side football tournaments um, and indoor, inside time, the Oakland Youth Centre, we did like pool t- table competitions and table, t- table tennis competitions and then after we had like music, sound system and the harsh reality of that event is that that event ended with a young man. He's a bit old. He's older than me, but a young man still. He was shot and murdered after, you know, an incident that happened outside the Oaklands Center. Um, that's when I realized that, you know, that things are happening in it. But when it actually happens in front of you, and you like you're leaving, and you have to walk over the body or walk around the body, um, that's when I started to just really realize that. This thing is real, man. And and I think some of those things and other things, people getting robbed and there's a lot of conflict happening. Those things play on your mind and you start to think, God, you can't live in this lifestyle for much longer because... You ain't going to win. You ain't going to win. It's death and it's destruction. That's the hostility. Um, yeah, it's it, you know, when you think about Hans Earth, man, Hans Earth is, some, is, a, is an area that's really worn a T-shirt on this thing. It's been—it's a, a flagship area. Like if you go into jails and you say you're from Hanza, you get stripes, you get passes, because people just immediately think, "Oh my God, you must be someone serious." B twenty one, yeah. One like it's B twenty.
1: Don't count if anyone's watching. It's B twenty one. It's true, I'm
2: not. I'm not. I'm not watching,
1: um, <laughs> It, it that that the whole postcode was uh, it was a big thing, especially where I used to go to school in Lordswood. I used to have to travel for like catch the eleven from there, yeah. go past two schools, which be George Dixon Card- Cardinal Newman at that time, and then get to Lordswood. And it used to be it used to be alien territory for me because there's only used to be a few of us used to come from from that area, mm. so it was like you you were. Not that you used to get past. You used to get respected a little bit, but there weren't enough of you to try and be unified to do anything. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So you were, you did have that vulnerability and exposed to say, "Oh, you're from there. You should know this. Do you know this person?" I was like, "Yo, mate, I don't know anyone. You know, I'm on the last road to 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 to, to West Brom." But that vulnerability and that whole experience, you know, is is a big thing. You know, you just said like, um, you know, walking around a body and those things how did that affect your development after that bit because not everyone at a young age is going to be see that you've just come through such a traumatic family experience you can just see yeah, it. Didn't,
2: didn't, didn't, it wasn't even nothing it was just like a chat that everyone had like oh my god did you see it but after about two weeks you move on and and that's the thing is like masculinity and i think that's where mental health plays hard enough in, in especially the african caribbean community because we're not taught to talk about things and show emotion or even show weakness. So, for me, even if I was going through something, to, for the type of people that's around, to kind of say, "Oh, this is affecting me," you'd be seen as a like, you know, a pussy or a weakling or something like that. So, you you, you didn't you you wouldn't you wouldn't want to show that vulnerability. So sometimes you don't deal with yourself. But that's and then we see in the in the in statutory services, you know, a lot of black men being sectioned under the Mental Health Act because I believe it's almost like they've kept all this stuff and this trauma inside of them and then it explodes in their mind and they go through like more serious episodes. So I I think we need to make conversations about mental health, trauma, depression, like much more normal.
1: It's a bit of a controversial point which I'm going to raise at uh, at this point Nathan which is like I think quite easily communities can blame services for a lot of things. And yes, I do think that they own their fair share of responsibility. But as communities, what do you think we could do to help the services as well? Because I think it's a two-way relationship. What
2: can we do to help the services? Me, for me, one of the things I think that I, I practically do is I do a lot of consultation. I do a lot of focus groups. So if you think about the CCG and people like that, the journey I will take them on is first to try and assess what is their problem. So they might say, Nathan, we have a big problem with engagement with the African Caribbean community. So we'll do a focus group to kind of unpack that and really look at that, Right. And then we'll do another focus group that we'll be looking at service design, but we would actually bring service users or people, the actual target group into the focus groups to help co-design, code we call it co-production, to kind of look at how can we make this service a bit more culturally relevant, more sensitive, and more appropriate. And then we would work with that organization, or it could be like the CCG, to like help them redesign their service with their input from the actual service users that they're trying to engage, or the... The very demographic and then there's sometimes when we get like we continue that journey where we actually help with some of the promotion and distribution of that kind of project or service that's been redesigned mm-hmm. and help them like get it into hotspot areas where they probably won't but I do think like how communities can help services is probably working with them more and, and creating workshops together where you can co-design ideas but well, you do need a, you need a space to, and the time to do that. My ideal would be outside of COVID, would be like the kind of environments we create with like really fun, high energy, lots of flip chart, lots of color sticky labels, and you make it like really arts and crafty and really like just rip things to, apart. And then you come up with the ideas at the end and then at the end of the ideas, you have like a kind of recommendation report or action plan that you can take forward. But how would
1: you get the, the, those the those street lads for example to kind of engage in them because what i feel is that what i, what I have done
2: yeah probably is i engage them around their passion so one of my most it's probably not the biggest project i've ever done but it's the most successful was a project called the silent screens project which was a mental health project that i ran on behalf no first i did it for myself and then i've done the same project for, on behalf of national mind london um, but what the first thing was, I never, ever spoke about the project being a mental health project. I engaged all the lads around music and I said, let's create an album together. But let's create an album that's going to talk about some of the things that we go through as men. And I I always started with them being the experts at the table. I said, look, I'm just facilitating this. I want to know what's your thoughts around creating an album, putting this music together. And you'd find that that would have like a positive impact in terms of engaging mm-hmm yeah because you know, they was engaged with the project through the music us. so nathan um th-
1: this podcast is known as the bandwagon um and what i do is i give an opportunity to all my guests really to kind of raise anything that they want to discuss or have an opinion on or jump on a bandwagon or get off a bandwagon um so is there anything that i know you said something racism Oh, God. OK, I was going to I was going to try and get that, especially in, I was going to kind of come to that if you did it, if you didn't go, uh, if you didn't mention it. So, um, I mean, the easiest kind of start is obviously what's happened, what we've experienced over over the last couple of weeks with the England team and some of the players within there. Yeah. And, and, and I think with Louis, um, Lewis, Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of I think it's kind of easy to use those as examples, however, not re- but important to try and understand that these conversations are going on for generations within that. How how do you, you know? What, firstly, what's your opinion
2: on it all? I just think that basically England for too many years has tried to turn a blind eye on this and act like it doesn't exist. So even when George Floyd tragically was murdered in America, England was trying to put up his chest and act like Oh, that type of stuff will never happen here. That's just in America. And that's when black people in particular, we and even Asian people, you know, got their back up because like everyone knows about microaggressions and when people look at you funny or people cross the road, like racism being happening in England, but it's just a bit more on the cover and behind the, and behind the scenes. And what's probably even more worse is when you talk about systemic racism, when you talk about someone having a racist view about you and making decisions based on being in a, power, a position of power that can have a detrimental impact on your, your earning capacity or your ability to get promoted in an organization just by the base of your color of your skin and how you look or if you don't fit the, the norm. So like, yeah, I think it's what's just happening is that I think COVID's become almost like a pressure cooker and everything that was actually there, and a magnifying glass, everything that was there is just being magnified. All this stuff was there before, but I think people have just being a bit more verbal than th- they have been before, and I think that could be a number of things: lack of social contact, frustration, so people are just speak in their mind, especially on the social media perspective, when you see all these back and forths happening, you know. But it's horrible, man, and I just feel that the government needs to take it much more seriously to understand that. You know, this stuff needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I, it was funny because it was like a week ago. I was in a, I was in a, I went to a spa, and I was just talking. And there was a lady there, and she was she was talking about the footballers and stuff. And I was like going, you know, like discrimination and, and things is kind of a part of life. Everyone's got a, a discriminated on some point, or 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 who are discriminate who discriminate against others at some point in their life. I think, but I remember doing a podcast with another guy and he said something like, if you're still the same as you were 20 years ago, you ain't grown. If you ain't going, if you ain't changed le- since a year ago, you ain't grown. And I think it's for people to kind of learn and behavior and change ways or try to understand situation. I think we always got to give kind of a road to redemption. So I think, you know, especially what Rashford does, he's like, he's killing them with his love, isn't he? The way that how he mm-hmm. behaves and what he does winning in hearts and minds and I think that's the only way through action and demonstration to be done because a lot of these organizations have been saying you know like wearing different badges and all these kind of things but nothing's changed in that way I think it's only kind of action and through uh, behavior mm-hmm. it, it can be done because like that's the that, I mean that's my own personal opinion whether it's right or wrong you know that's for others to kind of work out or you if people have got their own, own own ways of doing it I think when you put a spotlight on something you put it and you say okay what we're going to do now how are we going to move forward and then you look at you know children and the way how you know gangs are you know people crews are multicultural mm-hmm. and I think it's just a natural way of life where things are just going to evolve and
2: yeah
1: you know, I think it I think it'll go, go away but I think social media people in, in that way one of the proposals to have like verified accounts and things. So Yeah, yeah, have we'll, ID,
2: man. You can't just set up an account. All these troll accounts, that needs to stop immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's just simple by just doing the ID, photo ID registration. So apart from,
1: I, I know I'm just trying to trivialise it, but apart from the racism in there, is there anything else that you feel like, you, you know, the bandwagon that you would jump on or jump off or what you would like
2: to raise? Nah. See, I I wouldn't want to go into the conspiracy theories around COVID. That's a whole different topic.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we'll put that on another, we'll get that on another podcast in it and then we'll get, we'll get some of the other different views and opinions on that because obviously the, it's out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can't really talk about it on a, a lot of it because some of my own like podcasts have got shadow banned. Some of my own posts are got shadow banned when I put things on uh, online, on Insta especially. So very interesting. But anyway, mm. Nathan, uh, like to just thank you um for coming coming on. Um you're definitely one of the like main characters that you know um I've enjoyed working with and you know always love to have a chat, just get the feeling you know, just get the vibe. And uh, when we had this chat you asked me a question, you know, thank how are you. you? And it not necessarily about like uh you know your work and things like that. And I think yeah. you know your your community work, what you do um you know is is amazing and you are a credit to uh yourself and the community that you that, that you work with
2: yeah i would say thank you so much for the opportunity and if anyone wants to follow us um on our charity socials fc nation uk um follow me on linkedin nathan dennis please feel free to get connect